so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. This week, we're featuring Matt Chandler. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. I just love that text, that Christ hasn't come with new commandments for me, and He doesn't have another ten that He's bringing out and going, you really screwed up the first ten, I've got ten new ones for you. That's not how He's come. He hasn't come to condemn me, He's come to save me. The mission of God is to seek and save the lost. Not moral betterment, although that's a that, that's what happens when we are saved, right? We begin to be transformed from the inside out. But Christ has not come bearing new weight and new law, but rather has come to save us from that condemnation. One of the hardest segments of the population to reach with the gospel are those who think they are Christians because of where they were born and raised. Cultural Christianity has long deceived people into thinking they know Jesus in a saving way. Matt Chandler, at the 2016 National Conference, addresses this topic in his talk, Unbuckling the Bible Belt, Cultural Engagement in the Capital of Cultural Christianity. We hope you find this message helpful. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Luke chapter 15 uh, is where we're going to be. I want to just right out of the gate confess a couple of things. Well, just one in particular, like the thought that Andy uh, just went um, and such an expert on kind of culture and context and engaging that culture, just an expert kind of in the fields of sociology and all of that. It's a little intimidating for me. I'm, I'm basically rain man with a Bible. And so, uh, I, you know, I just kind of see the matches there and, and can kind of make sense of the matches. And so, uh, I, I want to talk with you, uh, about engaging culture in the Bible belt. I pastor a church in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, in 1998, Christianity Today put the Dallas-Fort Worth skyline, very famous skyline, that's not true at all, uh, on the, the cover of its magazine and said, the center of the evangelical world, right? That's what was on the cover of Christianity Today. Uh, I don't know if that's still the case, but certainly we are not lacking in megachurches and 501c3 nonprofit Christian ministries there in the DFW area. Um, I, I used to have this kind of ongoing argument with uh, friends of mine who had planted in far more secular places. And so, you know, places like New York or San Francisco uh, or Seattle, and they would talk about really the secularization of where they found themselves and how difficult that 
was and how hostile people were towards the church. And then we would get into this. I mean, pastors are funny creatures. We get in this kind of um, who's got the rougher go, you know, who's the Apostle Paul here, uh, you know, who's King David Cush on his throne and who's really paying the price here. Uh, and I would always just go, look, I, I so appreciate that. But I had a conversation with a man this weekend where he swears he's a Christian because he was born in San Antonio. So I, I get you're really angry, violent, hostile, secular atheist, but, but I've got a brother who's registered Republican uh, who was born in San Antonio, and he will swear to me, serious in his eyes, swear to me that he is a Christian. I've got dozens and dozens of people now in their 20s and 30s whose mamas and daddies came to them with a good heart when they were eight and nine years old and said, would you like to come to heaven with mom and I, or would you like to burn in hell forever? To which eight and nine-year-olds always respond the same way to that question. Always. Heaven with you guys, right? Not, you know what, let me think about it, mom. Let me get some crayons, make a little pros and cons list, and I'll get back with you. Uh, And so what ends up happening is we get churches that are filled with unregenerate Christians in a culture where any type of conservatism is just lumped into being a Christian. So if you are a social conservative, you are a Christian. So the culture in which we engage certainly has atheists and agnostics and secularists. They've almost all moved in. We've got a saying in Texas, right? Wasn't born here, got here as quick as I could. Uh, and, and so they, they, you can almost always spot someone who's from outside of the Republic of Texas, right? Uh, and, and you can spot it because there are things that are offensive to them that, aren't, that are cultural norms for us. They're not offensive to anyone else. So recently at the gym, ask, uh, a woman was new uh, to the area, and I asked her if she had found a, a good church, and she was offended by the question of have you found a good church. So I immediately go, she's from the Northeast or Northwest. She is not from the South, right? Because that, that's just friendly banter. Hi, my name is such and such. Oh, your name is such and such. Great. What church do you go to, right? That's Southern conversation. And, and yet it, it creates this really difficult kind of space to navigate where, where you're going to offend, not kind of the atheist and agnostic, but you're going to offend the one you're trying to convince they're not a believer so that they might become one. Right. And, and this is the space. And so uh, I just wanted to say I'm, I'm not an expert in kind of social norms or I'm not a sociologist. I'm not even I don't even know that I'm even great at reading culture, but I know the temperature uh, of the space that my life is playing out in. And I wanted to talk through a little bit of that. And I think uh, the best way to do that is just walk through a text. That's where I'm most comfortable uh, and confident. So let's look at Luke 15 together. Luke 15. I'm just going to start in verse one and we'll read uh, all of it. Uh, and, and that's awesome because it's the very words of God to us. Uh, Luke 15, starting in verse one says this. And by the way, I, I think the whole key, um, to this passage, cause it is a confusing passage, right? It's a parable with three stories. So think maybe Quentin Tarantino film, uh, it, it's multiple stories, but it's really kind of telling one story. But I think the whole key to understanding what's going on in this text is the first two verses. So Luke 15, starting in verse one, here's what the Bible says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, parable being singular. 
What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found sheep, I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, so there's your Quentin Tarantino thing, right? Here you are, your, your mind, you're watching this movie. There's a lost sheep, a guy's looking for uh, a lost sheep. He found the lost sheep. And next thing you know, you've got a, a, a woman sweeping her house. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. And then one of the more beautiful sentences in the Bible. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drawn, drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So this is a pretty epic party that's going on up at the house. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And again, I think this is such a profound sentence in this parable. But his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad 
For this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is now found. Now, what, what I think is happening in this text, in fact, what I'm very confident is happening in this text, is a series of um, deconstruction and reconstruction about not understanding correctly, ultimately, what the kingdom of God is about. And so Jesus, in a series of parables, is addressing who's in the crowd, and he's deconstructing their understandings, and he's reconstructing with what is true. And, and so really, that's what I want to do. I want to dive into this text. I want to show you uh, where he deconstructs, what he's deconstructing, how he reconstructs it, and then ultimately what that means in the Bible Belt. So that's my plan for our time together um, today. Let, let's take a look, first of all, at the crowd. Um, Jesus is uh, on his way to Jerusalem from Galilee, and the Bible tells us there's tax collectors and sinners in the crowd. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus is getting in trouble for being around the tax collectors and sinners, right? Luke chapter 5, this is becoming uh, a theme of his. And, and yet, um, what we know about tax collectors and sinners, I think, is somewhat, um, if you grew up in church, this is a Bible Belt phenomenon. This is something that you have to deconstruct. Here's be an example of, of what I'm going to talk about today. Like, like, if you grew up in church in the Bible Belt, what you know about Zacchaeus, is that he was a wee little man and a wee little man was he and that he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the lord he wanted to see right and you're like Zacchaeus you come down from going to your house today today right and so what what happens is here's what we learn that um, tax collectors are hated and despised because they take more money than they should Right, So Zacchaeus, the reason everybody hated Zacchaeus was because he should have took 20 from you, but he took 25 from you. Right, And, and yet, what's actually happening in the tax collectors is so much more grotesque and hideous than that. That if all you've got is kind of a felt board understanding of Zacchaeus, you know, being 5'1", 4'3", no offense to me, I'm just, it's the test. The Bible, your problem is the Bible and insecurity. It's not what I'm saying, right? And, and so ultimately here, what we've lost out on is that at this point in history, Rome rules the known world from India to England. Now, how do you rule that much space? So live in Texas. There's a group of guys in Texas that think Texas would make its own country. Uh, and make a really good one. I mean, if you just even look at the Olympics, what, we'd be in third place overall? <laughs> right? And so they're in the woods, man. They're practicing. They want something to happen. And so when I come across these brothers, I just remind them that I'm really glad you got your 40-round clip with a silencer and a laser scope. But you know, there's like, Google the word drone when you get home. <laughs> All right? Uh, Google M1 Abram. J- just Google those. Look at some images. Watch a couple YouTube clips. And then stop. And then, and then kind of back off this idea. So, so here's why. In, in the modern day, um, if you're governing a large landmass and a rebellion fires up against you, man, you pick up the phone, you make a call, helicopters, jets, whatever, are rallied in a moment, and you'll squelch it and shut it down. But there are no Apache helicopters in the first century. So how do you maintain control of mostly conquered people between India and England? Well, you have a massive, massive, massive army. Now, you use the age-old tactics of fear and brutality and murder and rape and all those kind of things, but you manage all of that through a massive army. Now, here's the question. How do you fund, train, weaponize, and feed a massive army? Taxes. 
So tax collectors, when you come across tax collectors and you can't quite figure out why everyone's so upset and you're so quick to go, I can't believe that they're like that, Jesus. I would have eaten with Zacchaeus. I'd have brought the whiskey and you're trying to be, you know, in reality, in reality, these men are guilty of something that's so hard for us to get our minds around, right? They have bid and won the right to raise taxes and take money from their countrymen to support an oppressive occupying force that history tells us is brutal, right? So they are actively taking your money to support an occupying force that is more than likely raping, murdering, belittling people in your family. So when Jesus goes, I'm going to your house today, today, And you've always gone, I just don't get what people are so upset about. That's what they're so upset about. And when the Bible's talking about sinners here, it's not talking about sinners like you and I would tell you. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. No, no, this is a class of people that's marked by either jobs that are kind of um, in disrepute. They're prostitutes, they're tax collectors, they're they're also those with deformities. Like, I'm just trying to get my mind uh, around this crowd, right? This is a grimy congregation of people and yet i don't want it to ever be lost on you that where jesus is teaching this crowd always tends to show up right where where the grace and mercy of christ is preached this crowd seems to be there but they're not the only ones that are there right they're not the 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 pharisees and what's interesting about the the text if you read it in the greek it, it says the pharisees and their scribes. So not Pharisees and scribes, but Pharisees and, and kind of the guys that take notes for them, right? That they're in the crowd too and that they are grumbling. And, and it's what they're grumbling that's it's really, again, it's, you've got to do some, some work in your mind. They're grumbling that he receives tax collectors and sinners and he eats with them. He's being friendly to sinners. Again, and there's this whole, again, as we dive into this, there's this whole, all these reasons why that have nothing to do with the mission of God, have nothing to do with the heart of God, have nothing to do with even how God sees the Pharisees. And so here are the, um, here are the if we talk about the Pharisees just briefly, you've got kind of four, you know, they're not a two-party system, they're a four-party system, basically. You've got the Essenes, they've withdrawn completely from culture, right? They're just like, forget it, we'll be out in the desert, good luck with that. Then you've got the zealots. They're like, hey, God's just moving a little too slowly on this thing. We'll handle it. Right? They're my Texans out in the woods practicing, getting ready to overthrow the empire. And then you've got the Sadducees. The Sadducees, well-educated, are somewhat respected. um, But they've rejected almost all of the supernatural acts of God as seen in the Old Testament. And then you get the Pharisees. And and the Pharisees accept, let's listen to the Pharisees. They accepted the Old Testament scriptures as God-given. They studied them. They followed them to a T. They tithed. They sent out missionaries and they looked, now hear me, they looked the most like Jesus in terms of tradition, behavior, and speech. Right? Don't be too hard on these guys because there are a lot of us. These guys are going to look the most like Jesus on the scene. And yet, he has to deconstruct and reconstruct among this crowd. Here, 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 here are the three things. I think he's, uh, that, that's my Baptist credibility right there that I only have three points. Um, the, he, he wants to deconstruct and reconstruct what the mission of God is. He wants to deconstruct and reconstruct what heaven rejoices in. 
And then he wants to deconstruct and reconstruct how God feels about the Pharisees. So that's my outline. I want to show you that happening and then tell you what it means for the Bible Belt. So here's the first thing, the mission of God. Now, if you're thinking about deconstructing what the crowd believes about the mission of God, here's, here's for all that we can gather from the scriptures, what I think is happening, right? The tax collectors and sinners think that the mission of God is actually to punish them. Everything in their day and age would be showing them, teaching them, heaping shame on them, not allowed in the temple, not to be touched, not to be fellowshiped with, not, they are people that are literally on the outs, do not know respectable, godly man or woman would be seen with these people in public. And if you, if you just stop for a second and think about it, how do you then treat those people? Well, a subhuman. You can't help that. If the rules, the cultural norms are you're on the outside, you are not welcome in the temple, you are not welcome in worship, you are not that forces your hand towards a type of inhumane treatment that you are subhuman. And you see this, you'll start to see this as you read your Bible and how they handle certain situations. Well, here's this woman weeping over her sins, wetting Jesus's feet. And what's Simon the Pharisee think to himself? If he knew what kind of woman this was. Like, why is Jesus, and think about it, the feet are the just, I mean, I think we mostly got church backgrounds in, right? What are the feet in the first century? Filthy covered in all sorts of horrific things. And what's the Pharisee think? I can't believe that Jesus would even allow her to touch his feet. That's subhuman. What's that, what's that fueled by, right? A, a belief that God's going to judge and destroy these people. So that's what they think the mission of God is. God's going to destroy us. And then the Pharisees think that the mission of God is to ultimately make people more like them. Right? So the mission, what God is up to, because that's, that's why they're sending out missionaries. That's why they're doing what they're doing. They believe that everyone should follow kind of what God had given the Levites to. Everyone should do what's required of those who would be in the, in the temple. And so now you've got this kind of he wants to ultimately what God is about in the proclamation of the word. And, um, and people memorizing and being obedient to the word of God is they're going to look more like us. And so Jesus just starts to deconstruct this in a really serious way. So the, the, if you're thinking about that crowd, the emphasis on seeking what is lost. So again, try to get your mind um, around the crowd and what's going on in the crowd. I'm, I'm just, I, if I, you know, Mark, you need to eventually make a movie about this. But uh, in the end, if you, if you think about like what, what someone who feels like they, they've sinned too far, that there's no real hope for them. That everything in culture and everything they've ever heard from a pulpit and everything they've ever seen about people who are serious about God in their community has told them, you're out, you're lost, you're gone, it's too late, wait for judgment. And now, feel the emphasis. Seeking the lost, seeking the lost. I, I have to believe that this not only created a ton of hope, but also a ton of anger in the crowd. So sleep well, Pastor. Jesus got angry emails also. Now, I, I especially think, I think here's a, here's a really profound moment, specifically in um, the, the story of the prodigal son. I just have to believe that if, with this crowd, that these words would, would land both heavy um, and happy on ears. So verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, I, I have that highlighted and circled in my Bible. I'm just praying all the time that men and women who sit out there every Sunday morning would come to themselves. But when he came 
to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now here's what's got to be happening at this point in the parable. So we've already walked through the sheep and the coin. Now this son has come to himself. So these sinners and tithe, they've come to themselves and they want to come home. And here's what they're thinking to themselves. This is that equivalent of knowing you're busted, but still having to go home and practicing the speech you're going to make to your daddy when you get there, knowing he's waiting for you in the living room, right? And and so he's practicing this speech. I'm not worthy to be your son, but maybe you'll let me be your slave. And so surely the tax collectors and sinners are going, okay, what's it going to cost us to come home? And the Pharisees are going, get him, dad, get him, dad. And then you can only imagine what happens when he says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate that that this reconstruction of the mission of God to seek and save the lost and to celebrate the adoption of sons. That the tax collectors and sinners wouldn't come home as slaves in the way they were thinking, but rather as sons. Here's the best robe. Here's what, this would have been so scandalous if you've always kind of struggled with that. Now, why did they kill Jesus besides kind of the sovereign plan of God ultimately? For stories like this, right? For stories like this. In fact, Jesus wanted to talk about this kind of stuff all the time. Like I said earlier, he already gotten quite a bit of trouble in Luke. I mean, as much trouble as Jesus can get in. In Luke chapter 531, when, when Jesus answered the Pharisees who had the same issue, like, hey, what, what are you doing with these people? And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then again, I, I love that John 316 gets the press. It does, and it's kind of used to be back uh, behind the field goal in football. Uh, but man, it's always been 317 that has felt like a warm blanket to my soul. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's love that text that Christ hasn't come with new commandments for me. And he doesn't have another 10 that he's bringing out and going, you really screwed up the first 10. I've got 10 new ones for you. That's not how he's come. He hasn't come to condemn me. He's come to save me. The mission of God is to seek and save the lost, not moral betterment, although that's a, that, that's what happens when we are saved, right? We begin to be transformed from the inside out, but Christ has not come bearing new weight and new law, but rather has come to save us from that condemnation. Now, what does that mean for the Bible belt? Well, the Bible belt is so twisted around this idea. Like, I just can't tell you how overwhelmed I've been for the last 13 years at how just the basic gospel message of what Christ has come from has been completely lost on a full generation. There's just a complete misunderstanding about what God is up to in the world. And so when we do baptisms, 
And I learned this really early on at the village that we would have our kind of cool baptisms that are kind of the ones that everybody celebrates as being awesome, you know, where, you know, they were a witch or they were, you know, OD'd on heroin in our bathroom before they, so we would have some of that, but, but there were so many, there were so many that were just like, grew up in church my whole life, grew up in church my whole life. And then I bailed and man, a friend started bringing me back. And I just never heard the gospel, just never heard the gospel. And, and I wrote about this in the explicit gospel, but as I dug around and had those kind of conversations, I thought, you know, being a good kind of reform soteriology kind of guy, I thought, oh, they heard, they just didn't hear. But then, you know, I would talk with them and man, they would, I mean, they could literally go back and look through stuff and go, no, 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 pastor, listen to me. Here you go. Um, I've got, we don't go to parties. We don't drink. We don't watch rated our movies, asterisk, bottom of the page, unless it's about the crucifixion of Christ. We, we don't, right? We, we don't cuss. We don't. We don't dance. We don't, right? I, I've got this long list of behaviors, but, but nowhere. Do I, I, I've even got, I even found this. I don't know if you remember this. There was a, if you like Dave Matthews, you'll love this band. Do you remember that? The, it's this whole, like, this is what it means to be a Christian, that you're good. That I'm telling you, a whole generation specifically that are coming out of that um, late 80s, early 90 time period got such a heavy dose of what Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism, that they're backwards on what the gospel message is and what the mission of God is in the world. They gave it their best go to be good and they failed. And they're, they're easier than the ones that are good at being good and have simply become just really self-righteous because why is it, why is it so hard for you to obey what, what God wants you to obey? We have to, in the Bible Belt, deconstruct the idea that Jesus is about good people. You've got to deconstruct that idea. No, no, already that, that starts to make your head swim if you're not careful. Well, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be good people? Well, Jesus makes us good people. He doesn't require that we're good people before we come. Right? That's why for all the kind of issues that we want to talk about on our day, the first one that I need to have with you is about Christ and his saving grace. And then we can move on to other things. But I don't want to go there before I start here. It doesn't mean I don't touch on other issues. It does mean, however, that from the pulpit of the village church, I want to herald over and over and over again, justification, adoption, progressive sanctification. I'm not going to get off of those. So there's even a joke on our staff that Chandler has one sermon. He just preaches it out of a different text. And I was like, thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. It's called the unity of the Bible. It's like God's telling a story. I'm sorry that you're as ignorant as you are, and we'll put you in the institute, right? And so I do. I'm not going to get off of it because the good news of the mission of God is that we are justified, adopted as sons, and then although we are positionally perfect in his sight, our sanctification is progressive, which means even now I am not yet what I will one day be. So I don't want to lose heart with who I am. And I certainly don't want my people to lose heart with where they are today. God's at work in their mess. I swear it's like we read the Bible through these lenses where no one struggles after an encounter with God and no one has any real issues of doubt. Nobody has these kind of moments where they trip up and really screw up and blow it. I swear we've got these lenses on now that are felt board lenses. They're not going to work in the Bible Belt because they're not our human experience. We struggle. We wrestle with doubt. There are seasons in which we feel like, is this all a myth? Man, did I get duped? And men, brothers, sisters, if we'll be there to go, all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. 
freely and forever. If we'll be there to say, no, 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 God just doesn't forgive you. He actually likes you. Can you believe that? Like, God likes you. Oh, he doesn't know me. No, he does. That's great. I don't, but he knows. Like, how amazing is that, that he knows you and he likes you? And I say this all the time. Not some future version of you. Not some future version of you. So I'll oftentimes use the illustration of the, the, when I first brought uh, Audrey home, we brought our first child home. Just the most selfish human being I'd ever been around my entire life. I mean, me, 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 I, I, I. Never, you know, why don't you get some sleep, Dad? I know tomorrow's long. No, wrap up that call, and then when you get a chance, I'm here in my own excrement. Just help me out when you get a chance. Just know, it, it was right now, drop what you're doing, take care of me. And listen, didn't bring really anything to the family dynamics. She wasn't throwing any coin, helping us make ends meet. She wasn't right. She just was not, and here's what I'm, I was crazy in love with that little girl. And not because I knew one day she wouldn't be like that. You know, I, I wasn't holding my infant daughter and thinking, God, I can't wait till you can drive yourself around. <laughs> when that day comes, I'm really going to love you. You know, this whole screaming till I feed you thing. I, my love for you will grow exponentially when you can just go, hey, dad, I'm hungry. No, I, I, I mean, I'm all in. I was madly in love with that little girl. And to try to help people understand You've been adopted as sons and daughters. That God feels towards you. That even in your hurts and hangups, he's there. Like by the grace of God, my three children have professed faith. But I used to have conversations with my now 10-year-old early on as he was kind of my doubter. Just like he would just say it out loud like he was testing whether or not I'd love him if he didn't love G. Like, yeah, I just don't know that I believe all that, Dad. I just don't know that I believe that God made the whole world. It just seems a little crazy to me. I mean, I know how he made the lions and stuff, but I just don't. The whole world, that's crazy. And so I'd oftentimes tell Reed, son, you're my son. I, I, I want you to love him. I pray for you every day that you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not because I love him, but because you love him. But I'm going to love you the rest of your life, regardless of whether or not you fully surrender your life to Christ. And I'm going to do that because you're my son. But people don't understand. I mean, people really, it's so, it's easier for us to believe that we're forgiven, most of us, than it is to believe that God likes us, that he's for us. So in the Bible Belt, man, I think you have to do a lot of work on harping on those things because so many people in your church don't know them. And then lastly, um, I think when you're in the Bible Belt, since he, Jesus deconstructed their view of what the mission of God is and he reconstructed it to seek and save the lost, then uh, I, I think the other thing to consider in the Bible Belt is that you have to help people who are coming to your church and feel like they tried Jesus and he didn't work, that they actually never tried Jesus. Because so many people in the Bible Belt thought that big hoorah towards morality that gave way when they went off to college was Christianity. And they're imprisoned by that. And so what we have found is, and, and maybe you'll find this in your location too, once they have kids, they start coming back because they don't want their kids to get pregnant or do drugs. So they're not really there for the Lord themselves because they already tried that and they didn't work, but maybe for their kid. They don't want their kid to have their life, so let's bring our kids real quick because I know I don't want them you know, doing methamphetamines and getting pregnant when they're 24, so let's, let's get them there. And then you have the opportunity to go, no, no, you didn't try Jesus. You, you tried the law, and the law was meant to lead you to Jesus, not to be Jesus. 
So I think these are things to consider. And then the second thing he's deconstructing is what heaven rejoices in. So the tax collectors and sinners would have thought that heaven rejoiced in the Pharisees. Funny enough, the Pharisees thought that heaven rejoiced in the Pharisees. Uh, and so you both of you have, you know what God's really, re- God's really apply what God really, what pumps Jesus up, what pumps the father up is the Pharisees are going us and tax collectors and sinners are like them, right? And they're both wrong. So look at verses five through seven. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons that need no repentance. And then he says it again in 9 and 10 about the coin. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now let me tell you, he's setting them up for where we're going next. All right. So here's what what he's saying. He's saying here, you know what heaven rejoices in? Heaven rejoices in the sinner who repents, the tax collector who repents. You want to know what starts a party off in heaven? It's sinners repenting of their sins, right? Now, um, this is going to be hard on the Pharisees, right? Because they're experts in their own righteousness, and they truly believe that they don't really need to repent. But they're well aware of who does. See, one of the surefire kind of marks of what Larry Osborne calls accidental Phariseeism, um, is that you are an expert in the weaknesses of others. And you compare their weaknesses to your strengths. It's a surefire way to blind you to your own sinfulness. Right? So what does this mean for us in the Bible Belt? I I think as we consider um, what heaven rejoices in, I, I think there needs to be a deeper understanding of what Luther meant when he wrote in the first theses. That for the Christian, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. There's a veneer that I try to preach against as often as I stand in front of our people. There's a, um, I I call it finitis at the village. And so what happens is we're in the suburbs of Dallas. Dallas, we don't have any mountains. We don't have an ocean or river. So we just work on ourselves. We're very pretty people, right? It's clothes and Botox and, right, it's just Dallas, right? There's nothing to do. It's too hot outside. So let's have plastic surgery, right? I mean, that's kind of Dallas for you. It's a very pretty place. It's a town that shouldn't be there. It's there by its own will, and, and so that kind of leaves a mark. And so what happens, especially in the suburbs, is you get this veneer of the perfect life. If you ever saw the movie American Beauty, it, it, it's kind of unpacking for you what happens in the burbs, right? It's I'm great and we're great and everything's going great. Not my kids great, not my wife great. And it's, it's Camelot. Are you tracking with what I mean by Camelot? Like on the outside, it looks beautiful. But on the inside, Lancelot's sleeping with the king's wife and it's all about to burn to the ground. And so what happens is people have a tendency to come to church and, and put it on. How are you doing? I'm fine, brother. You? So how are the kids doing? Well, praise the name of Christ Almighty. They're doing amazing. First week of school, little Jimmy shared the gospel with his whole homeroom. It's all, but it's all, it's a veneer 
It really is this kind of weird veneer of, I've got it all together, I'm doing great, everyone's doing great. And what happens then is without helping people in the Bible Belt understand, we don't get there. We're just moving in that direction so that our entire lives are marked by repentance. God, forgive me. God, help me. God, then they're going to fall into this kind of pretty, sanitary, I'm okay, you're okay, how you doing, I'm fine, amen, brother, nonsense that will not hold them up in the day of trouble. It cannot hold them up. It forces darkness into the shadows rather than into the light. Right? If... People in the Bible Belt don't know that what it means to be a Christian is for the rest of their life there to be repentance in their life. Then, brothers and sisters, every little struggle they have will be hidden in the darkness because they'll believe that they did that when they got saved. I just can't tell you the sheer volume of people that I know that are enslaved to sin and feel like they can't tell anyone about it because they got saved 15 years ago. Jesus is going to deconstruct what heaven rejoices in and reconstruct it as this. Heaven rejoices over repentance. Now, what did I mean by this is, in, this is he setting up in this one where we'll go next? Uh, lastly, um, I, I think he's deconstructing how God feels about the Pharisees. So um, now the tax collectors and sinners believe uh, that God um, set the Pharisees as the example. Now, the Pharisees also thought that God looked at them and smiled. It's why Jesus's rebukes are so incomprehensible to them. But they just can't understand the rebukes because it seems like, like no, 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 no. Like, God loves us. What are you talking about? We've sent out, you know how many missionaries we sent out last year? I mean, of course, our com- converts were made twice the sons of hell as we were, but we sent out a lot last year. What are you talking about? I'm doing like a two-year study through the book of Joel right now in the temple. What do you mean I don't, right? So, so let me tie this guy, this text for me probably is one of the most convicting, life-altering kind of encounters with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that I've ever had. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, because when you're an older brother, you don't want to talk to God, but you'll talk to other people about what God's doing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So, so here's been my, really, my backstory is just like, then let him sit out there and pout. I mean, that's just where my heart tends to go. Oh, you, you want to play it like that, right? Older brother, Pharisee. Just sit out there and pout then. I mean, because even the conversation he gets into with the father, I think personally is ridiculous. Like, you never gave me a goat. You're like, whoa, whoa, what? Do you, did you say boat? You can understand a boat more than a goat, right? You, you see what's happening here? Like, you, you heard the dancing in the field, bro. It's, it's crazy. Come in here, right? But no, like, I, like I, I was just at the place where I was like, religious people, forget them. I'll give my time, my energy, my space to those who are far from the Lord. And so I had, like if you've ever noticed, like my sermons pre-2006 are offline. There's a reason for that. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder, I wonder if there'll be another period of time as I get older. Like, you know what, go ahead and kill those two. (laughs) Go and pull those off also, right? 
But I had such venom towards church folk. I really did, man. I mean, like unhealthy, sinful venom. Just a gaggle of jackasses that did everything they could to stop people from experiencing the love of God. And man, all sorts of conferences and magazines just helped fuel that in me. Which is a really terrible situation when you feel that way and you pastor in Dallas-Fort Worth. <laughs> so here's, here's the sentence that when I read it, for whatever reason that morning, read this text a hundred times, the Holy Spirit of God just crushed my soul. Verse 28. But he was angry and he refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. So dad comes out and he sits next to the older brother that's being an idiot. He sits next to him and he says, what are you doing? Why are you out here? Do you know your little brother's home? You smell that? That's filet and not well done, bro. That, that's like medium rare. Like you, you hear that? I got Coldplay at this muck. Let's get in here. What are you doing out here? And, and what? It, like the older brother's not making it easy. It's hard. It's hard. Can't believe this. This son of yours. Not my brother anymore. The son of yours. This guy's not. We're not alike. We're not the same, right? And so then he makes even more pitiful excuses. So now I want the father to kind of handle him. But still, the father won't do it. Look, look at what he responds to in verse 30. The, the son, older brother finishes his rant. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you've killed the fatted calf for him. Look at 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found God, Christ, in the parable given to this crowd, is offering the same repentance to the Pharisees and their scribes as he was to the tax collector and the sinner. What I said earlier about God setting up where we were going next is what does heaven rejoice in? Repentance. What's the offer on the table to the Pharisee? Repent. Now, what does this mean in the Bible Belt? We will oftentimes have to help, if you're in the Bible Belt, really moral church folk understand that they're not Christians. There are few things more offensive to people who grew up in church with no relationship with Jesus Christ and no desire to follow him than trying to help them understand they're not really Christians. It's not a good church growth strategy. It is not uncommon for me to have to say something like this at the village. If you're in here and you've grown up in church and you were baptized as a kid, but you've never really had a relationship with God, like you, you have no desire to actually follow him or to surrender your life to him or to move towards a greater understanding of who he is, then I do not believe that you are a Christian. And I certainly would not think that you are one. Now, I'm not saying that you don't struggle. I'm not saying that you don't have doubts. I'm not saying, I'm saying if you have no desire, nothing in you 
that wants to grow in his relationship with God. Nothing in you that wants to follow him or understand more completely or give more of yourself over. If there's nothing in you that is motivated in any way to know him and follow him, then I just wouldn't believe that you were a Christian. And you might be thinking that's arrogant of me, but I'm telling you, the most loving thing I can say to you right now on this stage is to consider these words. And it would be cruel, wicked of me to try to encourage you that just because your mom asked you that question and you were baptized when you were eight and you've only been drunk twice and you didn't get your wife pregnant until after you were married makes you a Christian. Right? The fact that you've never voted anything but Republican is not a key into the kingdom. Right? And so you're going to have to press on that. You're going to have to give the Pharisee, you're going to have to give the older brother an opportunity to repent. I'm I love where I get to do ministry. Look, it's not in the city. It's no place cool. Right? It's the cush, comfortable suburbs of Dallas, Texas. Church on every corner. Mega churches galore. The type of programming that will blow your mind. Right? A little retina scan, shoot your kid through a tube into your car kind of churches. <laughs> Have you not read that yet? Y'all don't have that? And, and yet, and yet, such a lack of power. Such a lack of power. And man, I, I read Keller. I love Tim. Just brilliant. I, I love all that he says. You know, city comes down from heaven. I get it. Yeah, yeah, city. Um, and, and I get, I get that the city's dark. And, and yet I, I will continue to say I have seen some of the most horrific acts of evil and some of the most heartbreaking messes in the burbs that's not public and out there but hidden for so long that when it finally does come to light, life's burned to the ground. See, wealthy mamas and daddies who give their kids 300 bucks a week for their allowance and then can't figure out where their kid got the money to buy the heroin that he OD'd on. Or they just get the drugs from their parents out of their nightstand knowing their parents won't bust them because they can't go, do you take my weed? This is what we're dealing with. And so much of it is under the banner of being Christians and being church folk. Um, Love this quote. From Francis Schaeffer, it's from his book, No Little People. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism, nor the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. All these are dangers, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ individually corporately tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. So I I really do believe, and I think one of the reasons I do love ministry in the Bible belt is what we don't have an issue with is like Christmas Eve services and Easter for us. They're insane. Because it's still a cultural norm there. 
There's still a cultural norm that on Christmas and Easter, you take your family to church. And so I, that means at least twice a year, I get the opportunity to lay before them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I, I often wonder and pray what would happen if among the churches in the Bible Belt, the gospel would really embed and, and get into the souls of this massive amount of people that's willing to come weekend after weekend and after weekend. It's also why it's just so devastating when other forms of going at this are presented. So you, you take and teach young pastors that here's what it means to be successful. This is how many people you baptize. This is what it looks like to be successful. And you put that into a culture where raising kids is a competitive sport. Then you got churches that are going to allow just anything to go on baptism. And then what you have is an unregenerate congregation. And unregenerate congregations, no matter how conservative they are, do a lot of damage to what God is ultimately up to. Uh, I'll end just with this and say a prayer. Like I'm, I am not anxious or nervous about where we're going and what's going on. And I know if you spend a lot of time online, it's the end of the world. Christ will return any moment now on his steed with his, with his sword to slay them. And I'm just really optimistic watching what the Lord is doing. If you pay attention to churches and what God's doing around in young people, just don't lose heart. Like he, we don't lose, right? You remember that? We, we don't lose. Like God's just not in any kind of panic over this election right now. Like get in here, guys. Trinity, right over here. I know we were given a lot of attention over there in Africa for a while, but what in the world is this? I get back and these are the nominees. All right, so I, I want you to breathe out and remember that we win. Be faithful where you are. We win. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters, an opportunity just to be with one another and read your word and consider some things that are true. Father, if there's any, anything in, in what I have said that um, would displease you or is out of step with your heart for us, then I just pray very quickly people would forget it. And yet, if, if there's something here that you have for my brothers and sisters, would you haunt them with it? This is routine for us. I mean, this is what we do. We sit in conferences and we take notes. We listen to podcasts. We, content is not the problem. And so just ask that you would, Holy Spirit, haunt us for our good. That you wouldn't let us just kind of move on to lunch or whatever's next, but that you would, in a very real way, compel, convict, shape, mold us. And it's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us on the ERLC podcast. To subscribe to the podcast and find more information about Christianity and cultural engagement, visit ERLC.com.